Welcome back to SDG Talks. We're your hosts, Kevin and James, based in Chicago and Scotland, and we're here to inspire you to take action towards achieving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Each week's episode, we will be talking with changemakers about their grassroots and global initiatives related to the 2030 Agenda. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode, and please be sure to check out the show notes for links and further reading. There are tipping points within the climate system, and it's as evident from the paleoclimate record that shows these really pronounced oscillations like Tanskarakar that are not forced. You know, s- some of the oscillations are forced by, say, uh, orbital changes, although even there you have a, a nonlinearity in the sense that what seems to be a relatively small forcing can lead to a large change, but then there's also these internal oscillations. And it's interesting that, um, you know, he, he, human um, uh, civilization has basically developed in the, the last... Welcome to this week's episode of SDG Talks, where I talk to Ted Shepard. I don't do a lot of talking. He does a lot of talking about his topic and his area of research, which is large-scale atmospheric dynamics and climate modelling, and potentially quite an intimidating topic for a lot of people. I think he does a great job of really getting into some of these processes and, and how we actually try to understand these systems better and how, how we actually try and put them into models that, that we can that we can then take learnings from and understand a bit more about how uh, our planet might end up looking in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Um, as you hear from him, there's a lot of uncertainties and a lot of room for improvement, but really great to, to talk to Ted and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed chatting to him. Great to have you here on the SDG Talks podcast, Ted. You are currently a professor, a Grantham professor, you'll have to explain a little bit more about that, of climate science at uh, Reading University. And your research is really into large-scale atmospheric dynamics um, and climate modelling, an area which is extremely important for the world right now and a a big hot topic. Um, If anybody's seen the sixth assessment report, which came out last month from the IPCC. Um, But what would be great would just for anyone listening to to start off with an introduction to yourself uh, and a bit of your research before we get into into more of this topic? Sure. So <clears throat> I'm a Canadian and I was trained in, in both the US and Britain. I actually did did, did a postdoc in Cambridge in the in the in the 80s, a long time ago. Uh, but but uh, spent most of my career in Canada and I was working I'm interested in the fluid dynamics of the atmosphere, but on the larger scales, by which we mean something like a hundred kilometers and up. So the dynamics of jet streams and storms, the stuff like that. In Canada, I was mainly working on very theoretical aspects. And also I worked a lot on the ozone layer problem because the role of, although it's a chemistry problem, the role of uh, dynamics shapes the, the ozone hole and so on. But then I moved to Britain in 2012 and uh, the Grantham just means it's, it's endowed by the Grantham foundation. Jeremy Grantham's a, an investor who wants to do something about saving uh, the planet and he's founded a few so there's some Grantham institutes uh in britain as well as one in india um and this was just, just a chair connected with, with with that so it's it's uh that's a uh, that's the, the the history behind that so i decided to um focus on the um on the uh, on the problem of trump climate change but bringing dynamics to bear on climate change and so that's been the focus of my research since i moved here Awesome, thank you for that. And and just as a, a follow up to that for anybody listening in, I mean, what? How much do we today actually know about our large scale atmospheric dynamics? How, uh, of course, we understand the fundamentals, but how much have we been able to really drill that down into yeah. totally understanding the system? Well, that's that's the the question that I began to realize we we didn't have a very good good answer to. Um, you know, everybody, every meteorologist will go through uh, classes in atmospheric dynamics, and a lot of it's a bit like if you took Latin. There's cl- classical c- concepts that are, you know, part of the canon. Um, we do, uh, I, you know, if if you're trying to explain the large scale patterns of the atmosphere, why we have jet streams, why we have a monsoon circulation, why there's deserts and that sort of thing, that's understood in 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 general terms, um, but uh, in the in detail, it's actually not very well understood, and um, th- th- this actually came to me in a very pro- uh, prosaic way. I sing in a 
in a choir and we rehearse in an elementary school and in the cafeteria they have this they had this map of barnaby bear or something and various animals from around the world but it showed the 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 deserts and so on and i realized you look at this map and if you look at a blurry um the deserts are at certain latitudes and things but then you look at it in detail every continent's different the different pattern of what's dry and what's wet it varies um, from continent to continent and of course it varies because of the different mountains and different ocean you know land ratios and so on but that's really what we're talking about with climate change is understanding that level uh, uh, of detail um, it's not good enough to be five or ten degrees latitude you know because we're talking about where people really are and it really matters if you're off by five or ten degrees latitude it doesn't matter as a general explanation if you're just explaining why we have <laughs> deserts and why we have rainforests. But if you're talking about climate change, it really matters. And on the so physicists tend to talk about the thermodynamics and uh, uh, dynamics. In fact, the equations that govern the climate system. There's one equation or uh, for for the thermodynamics and an, another equation for the dynamics. Dynamics is Newton's second law, F equals m a. Uh, thermodynamics is the first law uh, of thermodynamics, conservation of energy. So they're very well-established concepts. But from thermodynamics, you can build a lot of, um, and, and scientists do build theories um, based on essentially thinking of the atmosphere as a single air parcel or a single system. And it works pretty well. You know, we add greenhouse gases to the system. It warms up. The atmosphere holds more moisture. Um, ice melts. Sea level rises and so on. But when you're talking about the dynamics it's much more complicated and it's the system's chaotic any you know they we have lots of examples of well the, the butterfly effect is a famous example for weather of chaos and um there's nothing like the basic theory we have uh lots of heuristics uh lots of idealized theories theories that you can prove that's what i used to work on in the first part of my career you can develop theories for idealizations of the real system but as soon as you talk about the, the real world, these uh, idealiz uh, idealizations don't really work anymore. So then we turn to climate models uh, in large part, I should say observations too, of course, but let's just maybe describe climate models as maybe we can get out of that. So these are simulators. Um, I mean, people do this in all kinds of different fields. You simulate uh, the behavior of a system based on the laws of that system. So people will simulate um, ecosystems, with agent-based models and these kinds of things. There's all sorts of, you know, simulations are a large part of many parts of science. For um, climate science and for weather science, for, for that matter, the governing equations are the ones I just talked about, like Newton's law and so on. There's no, there's no controversy about what those, what those equations are, but you have to simulate them, and they're equations uh, which involves approximations. And most fundamentally, the equations are for a continuum, uh, like a, uh, a fluid, or the atmosphere is a fluid, even though it's a gas, it behaves, it ha has the same properties as a fluid. And, um, you know, in principle, you have to um, to, de to describe the motions down to the scale of a centimeter or, or so. But of course, you can't fit that on a computer. So you break the atmosphere up in, in, and the ocean up into grid boxes. And these are quite course uh, you know a typical climate model might be 80 to 100 kilometers a typical weather model might be 5 to 10 kilometers it depends on the application but there's still a lot in it's that approximation which is the heart of the of the challenge um but anyway you 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 make these approximations and you run simulations uh, of the system and you try to analyze the the behavior of the system that way um sorry i think i've gone off uh, no, 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 so that was really awesome. No, no, this is this is something you mentioned there that I thought was quite interesting. Um, talking about the fact that models, of course, are used in lots of different sectors and fields. You know, I, I originally um, came from studying in biochemistry, so we would look at protein folding, and you're very much looking at thermodynamics and how protein folds. And, and I guess a question I've got here is, what's the kind of cross discussion like between modeling in different fields and is there any oh you mean different fields in, in terms general? of you've got climate models and you've got yeah. you've got um well it's an interesting question i think there hasn't been much to my awareness mm -hmm. but there's beginning to be my uh there will be a lot of that because 
um, more and more. So so far, the the approach has been the physical parts of the system, including uh, the 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 biosphere, not not animals, but you know, um, let's say trees and so on. Um, and so you start with the with the uh, with the dead part of the system. Let, let, let's say the atmosphere and the ocean itself, and that follows, as I say, um, neighbor Stokes equations and so on. Um, then there are some problems to do with the role of, um, let's say, when you get particles in in clouds and aerosols, because the fundamental physics of that isn't well known. So these that's much more heuristic. And then you start talking about. Um, um, you know, living systems and how they will respond to winds and temperature and so on. And then that gets into modeling, which is uh, a different kind of modeling, although to a large extent, it's going to be based on physical principles very much if it's, if it's due with soils and, and trees and so on. It's going to be based on, we, we, we talk about budgets a lot. So you can think of the, uh, a budget just means accounting for it, it ins and outs of a system. And so Newton's law is actually a budget for momentum. Uh, the first law of thermodynamics is a budget for for energy. If you're going to um, model the the biosphere, you have budgets for carbon and nitrogen and water and all, all, all these things. But then you start getting to let's say animals and people. <laughs> then it's what's called agent based, and you have rules for you know just as in pop, population dynamics. But those are not. Based on the same sort of physical principles, there, um, you know, that 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 you would have in, in let, let's say, the more uh, the more physical parts uh, of the system, but there's increasing interest in having um, simulators of the entire system. Basically, it's called actually di digital. Um, there's a digital Earth framework. There's all these. Uh, well, di a digital twin is a general concept. So it's a general. It's basically a concept of simulating a, a system that you're interested in having a. A digital model of a physical system. So for climate scientists, this is you know what's the news? We've been doing this for ages. Obviously, if you're dealing with a factory or some other business, you know it's a, it's a different thing. But there's quite a lot of interest in trying to have digital twins of the environment and 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 so on. And so people are starting to think about how to combine these different kinds of modeling systems with the climate modeling systems. But it it is a different philosophy. Um, and you have to think very carefully about how to do it. So it's an interesting question, but I'd say that's a frontier question very, very much. Mm. Awesome, awesome. There's there's something that's always really fascinated me about the climate system, um, which is teleconnections. So you'll have, you could say, more local, I guess, like regional um, mm -hmm. atmospheric activity or dynamic that can affect something in another part of the world, which could also affect something else. Which could, <laughs> It's almost like a, a food web or the workings of a cell on, on a, a macro scale. Um, could you tell us a bit more about these teleconnections and, and why they're so important for the climate? Because I think it's quite an interesting topic to, sure. to delve into. And this is actually a good contrast between dynamics and thermodynamics, because in thermodynamics, the, the reason that we have a lot of confidence in these thermodynamic aspects of climate change is, is you write the equations for your single grid box, let's say, which you're thinking of a parcel of air. And it turns out that you can just aggregate. You can just add up all these boxes and you get um, the, the system is still valid in, in, in some sense. And it's just, um, it's, it's uh, called extensive physicists will, 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 would call it. With dynamics, it doesn't work that way because um, every, how should I put it? It's, it's the features that really matter. So if you ha have a jet stream over Britain, let's say, you don't get a better understanding of the jet stream by averaging all the way from Iceland to Spain. Actually, you, you, you get a worse understanding of the jet stream. So aggregation actually de de destroys the very thing that, uh, that you're interested in. Let's like if you're interested in, in Jupiter and you're interested in the Great Red Spot, you have to look at the Great Red Spot. You can't aggregate. There's no point in taking a bigger and bigger picture. And mm -hmm. so that's the challenge is that what's valid at the um, at the parcel scale, because everyone agrees on the equations at the fluid parcel scale, as I say, Newton's second law and so on. But how those questions, uh, sorry, how, how those, um, that theory d doesn't tell you what's going to happen on the large scale. You, you would call those, physicists call those e e e emergent phenomena. There's nothing e e in the equations that tells you there's going to be a great red spot. That's 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 sort of a surprise, if you like. The jet streams are a surprise. So these are called emergent uh, phenomena. Um, 
Anyway, teleconnections um, refer, it, 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 or, it, it illustrate this because what happens in one part of the atmosphere, um, say you have, a, a, well, classically, you have either a disturbances from, say, mountains or from the deep convective clouds in the tropics is a classical example. For example, El Nino is a major source of teleconnections. Um, these generate waves, just as when I speak, I generate a sound wave. If, if you splash in the water, you generate a water wave. There's large-scale waves that are called Rossby waves, after a, a famous meteorologist, Rossby, which are particular waves that apply to, uh, to planetary atmospheres. Um, and these propagate, and they, just like any other wave, they, they transform or a momentum and energy and and information. So um, that's the mechanism. Basically, if you disturb the atmosphere in any part of it, that information will spread through these through these waves, and they will in, in influence all of other parts of the atmosphere. Um, and and those kind of uh, phenomena must be quite difficult to model accurately. And and so yeah. how can you say? Yeah, the El Nino Southern Oscillation is affecting the Indian summer monsoon, and to what degree? And yeah, do you not know that it's other? Right. So that's the thing that if you if you um, if you stick with idealization, so I should say that the um, we have what we would refer to as hierarchies of conceptual models uh, of the atmosphere. By a conceptual model, I just mean a simplified set set of equations. So. Um, you can write what are considered the fu fundamental equations that go back to neighbor Stokes and so on, but in practice, it's easier to solve simplified um, <laughs> or reduced models. Um, and in those simplified models where you can take out a lot of the, con the complicating factors, then you can have theories uh, for these teleconnections, which are based on what's called linear theory. So if you go in the limit of small amplitude, you often can, um, you, well, you can solve most, most problems. Um, uh, but the, the the difference so those again give give a qualitative explanation and these simpler theories give you they give you recognizable predictions they will tell you that if you force um so El Nino will force waves which then tend to propagate they follow um uh, rays there's a there's a theory for this that they have to follow great great circle routes basically and so they will affect California over North America, and if they continue long enough, they will affect Europe, although that's a more, a more downstream effect. But the dip, the, the, so in, in that sense, the theory of the, the, the basic theory is not complicated, but the basic theory is for an atmosphere at rest and, and for small amplitude disturbances. And the atmosphere is not at rest, it's got jet streams and so on, and the disturbances are not small, they're quite large. So this gets, it becomes nonlinear. You know, basically, um, in most physical systems, once you get nonlinear, you become chaotic and you can't write down simple closed form solutions. Um, so then you turn to the simulators or you try to, or of course you look at observations. That's the other, that's the other thing. The difficulty with observations is that they're very limited in terms of the length uh, of the record. So El Nino has been recorded for actually quite a long time, about 150 years. And actually, the links to the Indian summer monsoon were first found in the 1920s or, or so, um, based on the observations. Um, but then if you, so that, and that you have a couple of El Ninos, or, you know, and the positive events, the El Ninos are, can be different from the La Nina, the cold events. So if you're interested in the difference, then you have to treat them separately. And then they interact with other oscillations, like the quasi-biennial oscillation, volcanic eruptions, um, different uh, be behavior of the stratospheric vortex. So you very quickly run run out of data because you have to co condition on all these different factors. So that's when you turn to the models. But then the models are very sensitive to the to these to these um, to, to small biases. The, the way you speak about this so effortlessly, Ted, it makes me wonder two questions. One being, do you often wake up at night thinking of different potential connections between climate components of the climate system? And secondly, if can you enjoy uh, weather events like walking through a storm? Or are you always thinking about how that might be playing out in uh, a <laughs> in a um, in a more theoretical way, if if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, well, actually, it's I I tend to think m at least what 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 I 
um, what keeps, I shouldn't say what keeps me, me awake at night, not in terms of worrying, but the sort of thing I think about if I think about work is statistical aspects of it, maybe we can come on, come out of that there because there's been a disconnect in climate science between physical uh, theories, let's call it. I mean, everything we've been talking about pretty much is about f physical processes and that's the way that physicists are, are generally trained and meteorologists are generally trained from that background. We think in terms of physical processes. Um, but for me, when we to think about climate change, you have to think about uh, uncertainty, and then that gets you into the whole area of what's called pro pro probability theory. And so that's what actually I find most interesting, and that's got such philosophical implications too. So I guess I'm not as phenomenological as as, as some people. I mean, actually, it was interesting when, when I came to Reading because I used to teach about the atmosphere course at Toronto, but I was in a physics department, so I would start with the with the equations and build up from there. But here, because it's a meteorology department and the way that the course had been taught, um, I, I began from the observations and tried to say, how do we explain the, uh, the observations? So it's a different philosophy. Um, it's a really important philosophy. It was a really good learning experience for me as well, I have to say. Um, yeah, so, but it's somehow I, I, I guess what I'm puzzled by is, is the, is how to represent things in, in a statistical or quantitative way. But you're right that it's, it's all about the, the dynamics of, of, um, Rossby waves. And, um, there's a lot of interest in at the moment in whether the jet stream might behave. For, for, for example, you hear a lot about a persistent, um, or stuck events where you where the jet stream get gets stuck in a certain location for a couple of weeks, and that can lead to heat, heat waves in the summer or to cold snaps in the winter. No one has any quantitative understanding of that at all. It's a really open area, and when 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 people um, study heat waves, say the IPCC study heat waves, they stick to typically three days or something like that, very short term events. But these longer duration events that really matter um, on a say a one to three week time scale, that's when you get the really severe impacts. That's really governed by these dynamical processes like teleconnections, and it's a really open area. So um, no, I, I'm hot. Pe people are getting aware of this. I just mm. reviewed a paper on this topic uh, that was proposing to, you know, promote research in this area. Um, so I think it is fascinating, and it does link to things that we understand from, say, a weather perspective, but haven't brought into climate science very well. So there's there's still quite a lot in that arena to to keep researching on and, and understanding better. And coming back to a, a comment you made before about what well, sounds like um, teleconnections have been um, they're, they're now quite well understood. Would you say that that also translates into the climate models? I'm, I'm really quite curious to know how robust would you say climate models are today? Um, yeah. Well, they're actually not very good on the tele uh, on the teleconnections. Um, and uh, when you say they're well understood, yes, they're well understood. The basic mechanisms are well understood. But uh, what's most Im interesting is when the different um, uh, uh, different teleconnections interact. You know, if you have a couple of different things going on and they combine, you can create a, a perfect storm. So people are very interested in when, the, you know, the Madden-Julian oscillation, which is a, a phenomenon uh, of the tropics on shorter timescales, can interact with El Nino, There's and the, the stratospheric polar vortex is very important in certain regions, all these things. And when these things interact, that's when it's it's a very nonlinear thing, and um, a small error can make a big difference. So the models have quite big biases still, in the representation of many circulation aspects, and in particular the um, the memory, let's say. So, if you um, uh, the, the the climate system has different sources of well, we 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 call it memory. It's just inertia. So, for example, if you um, you know the jet stream can't just stop. It's got a certain amount of momentum, let's say, right, and you can't just stop it. If you have a disturbance, it'll it'll still propagate for a few weeks or something. The ocean has e even more memory, and so you have these ocean currents that will continue for years if they're kind of left. I mean, they have those kind of timescales. And then the deep, the deep ocean has even longer timescales. And the climate models are very poor at representing this memory. So um, in general, it's been shown that climate models behave too, way too much like what's called 
white noise, which is a f f physics process where you don't, don't don't have any memory. But the real world is much more red noise. So that that really matters because that will lead to very long term um, uh, uh, variations. For example, you know, multi year droughts, that kind of thing. So the and it's all to do with 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 teleconnections because you have all this memory in the ocean part of the system, which is um, insufficiently long in the climate models, and then th that will connect to, let's say, droughts over a certain part of the world. So it's it's all to do with understanding how these different sources of bias, we would call them bias, how they affect the result, and if we can uh, somehow adjust for that, and pe people call it bi bias adjustment. I mean, can we actually deal with this statistically? Um, but it, it, teleconnections med mediate everything, so it's a very it's a very good point to uh, to f to focus on. Yeah, and, and and I guess like you said with the with the butterfly effect earlier, you know, any of these anything that's slightly off. If we're trying to say, oh, by twenty, a big buzzword seems to be twenty fifty for some reason. I don't know why, but decarbonization oh. by twenty fifty. Oh. <laughs> let's just say by twenty fifty, the climate's going to look like this. This this there's like four potential scenarios. It's like okay, how do we really know that this is what, what we're talking about? Or twenty one hundred, and then, yeah, uh, yeah. What's your feeling towards the the models that we're using today? for how we are trying to mobilize adaptation, sure mitigation, I mean, we need to do it regardless yeah. of, of how accurate the, the models are, but uh, the adaptation uh, side of things is maybe requires a bit more specificity. In yes, 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 I think it's right. And, and I think um, the, the climate community has been organizing largely through uh, a coordinated effort to support the uh, IPCC process. And largely speaking, the, the mitigation and the adaptation problems are being are being addressed with with the same sets of models. There's some slight differences sometimes, but they're basically the same sets of models. And I, I really feel that we're falling between two, two stools here. Because if you want to address the mitigation problem, then you really need to look at longer time scales, and you need to have a good understanding of uh, of the carbon cycle and, and all these things. And in order to, you know, com computer models obviously cost. Um, well, money event and, and power eventually. So we, we, we think of it in terms of co computer time, but that, that all translates into, into cost and actually non-trivially um, contributing to the carbon budget itself. The amount of computing, the, and it's not, not just climate models, of course, it's all our, all our servers and things is pretty frightening. So anyway, we have limits. And um, I think it's fair to say that the physical, pro the, the processes that you have to represent for the mitigation problem are rather different than the processes you have to represent for the adaptation problem. For the adaptation problem, you could look at much shorter timescales. You could use more like weather models, run them in much um, more limited uh, timescales, or of course, people often just simulate a particular region of the atmosphere too. Um, those are called regional models, which can be run at much higher resolution. Um, so I think we have to use a variety of tools and find ways to com combine the, the the information from all these tools. And the community has been on this path of trying to do everything w w with 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 the same set of tools. And I think it just isn't isn't you know maybe that was okay tw twenty years ago, but I think the the questions are much more uh, specific now. So we have to get a little more flexible in our use of these of these different modeling tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess. Um just knowing the big kind of scary headlines you could say about increasing frequency of natural disasters and increasing intensity of natural disasters, those kind of things are useful for pushing the mitigation agenda and the fact that we bad things could happen, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. But I guess, like, like you're saying, knowing specifically what does that mean for East Africa or what does that mean for South America in 20 years, 40 years, then it can, can be quite a useful tool for adaptation. It kind of leads into another question. I mean, you're over here on the modeling side and you are helping to create the potential or well, the projections for what things could look like related to the weather, the rainfall, the temperature, all the rest of it. How, how well do you think this is being used on the adaptation side? Of course, you've, we've got the IPCC reports and yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm working, I'm not working directly on adaptation, but I certainly work with people that do. But I think the general feeling is, um, it's it's terrible, in the, in the sense that the information is largely not not being used. So there's many people that have written pa papers on this. There's of course a bunch of reasons for for that, and I think it's the first thing to recognize is it's not just about the science. You know, there's this. Um, 
knowledge deficit model that people will act if only they have the right information. Of course, that's been shown to be completely wrong. And on the mitigation side, it's obviously wrong because we've known what we have to do for 30 years. So a lot of it's to do with psychology and motivation and all, you know, incentives and things. Um, uh, but, um, but I think there are two different kinds of questions for mitigation and for, and for, I mean, partly there's, there's the issue of um, mitigation in terms of carbon targets and that kind of thing. But as you said, um, a motivator for mitigation is also, um, you know, increased uh, extreme events and so on. But there's, um, you, you, so you have to ask yourself um, whether you really want information on what's going on essentially globally or, um, or across very large regions where you can aggregate uh, versus a very specific region. And so this is a kind of a, always a question that, that arises as to whether you treat things in aggregate or whether you treat them in specificity with a kind of a case study or a clinical approach. So, you know, just think of COVID um, from a public health point of view, we're dealing with things in aggregate. But if you're a GP dealing with a particular patient, you're going to take a very clinical approach and you're going to look for the very specific risk factors for, for that individual. It's a very different kind of approach. It's the same, you know, you've got the same contrast, to, say, between economics and business and so on. So I think every field has a kind of aggregate approach and a, and a specific approach. But we haven't really adopted the, the, the specific approach in climate, even though in weather science, it's actually very mainstream. Um, weather forecasts will, will, will spend forever uh, understanding particular storms and why the forecast models did or did or, did not capture a particular storm. The concept of st statistical significance that uh, 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 doesn't even arise because it's a single storm and they care about that single storm because they can't just, you know, a weather forecaster, if, if you miss a big storm, that's really serious. You can't just say, oh, it was only one event. I mean, you know, you're, you're not allowed to take that view, whereas climate scientists much prefer to think in aggregate. But I think, I think that's why we need more of a weather um, approach to climate, actually, thinking of a climate as a collection of weather events, at least in terms of adaptation. So just to give well, one example, the, classic, um, the, the classical climate science approach to adaptation is to take these global climate models and then you downscale them through, a ver through either um, an embedded regional model or some statistical approach, and then you bias correct and you do all this post-processing post, uh, and then try to predict the impact run it through an impact model and try to predict the impact on, on flooding or something. But you've made so many approximations because there's so many um, biases in models, you can't really place any, any, any uncertainty on it at all, I think. Um, so the other approach is to take a weather model and just, um, which is, has a good representation of these phenomena because weather models generally do get storms quite, quite accurate and just perturb the weather model in a certain way and try to ask what would that system look like in a future climate so that's that's the other approach of starting from the weather phenomena and creating what i call storylines of how the how they might evolve under a future climate and that's more of this um case study type approach which is in contrast to the to the aggregate approach mm -hmm. and could you say a little bit more about this storyline approach um also for maybe some more of the non-experts who, who are listening you've you've explained it but Perhaps you could um, come back to it and talk a bit um, about what we've been discussing before coming on the podcast about this typical frequentist approach that the climate models have been taking. And um, yeah, w what does that actually you know mean for the uncertainties when they when they create an ensemble? If anybody's been reading the IPCC reports, they see we've got an ensemble mm -hmm. of climate models, and you could, you could sort of break that down for the listeners and and also then lead into the storyline. Yeah. Okay. So I guess. Um... Uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but the most uh, statistical uh, approaches, if you look on the web and you, you know, people are, are used to p-values p and t-tests and all these things, they're based on what's called the frequentist approach, which is the idea that a, a probability is a likelihood, um, uh, you know, of something happening. We, 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 we talk about event being a one in 10 year event or something like that. And that requires uh, an assumption that you can think about all that it's meaningful to think about a, what what might sometimes might, might, might be called a long run frequency or a chance frequency something like that so it's it's it comes to the basic uh, idea of chance if you flip a coin you have a certain uh, probability of heads and tails if you 
roll the dice, you have a certain probability of, you know, one, one of the sides and you can apply the same kind of thinking to, um, you know, many, many different kinds of things. So that's the origin of this, uh, this concept, but you have to be able to uh, define a population of events, all of which have to be the same event, the, 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 or the same kind of event. The classical de definition is IID, um, uh, uh, independent and identically distributed. So, um, you know, the six sides of a dice are independent and you have the same likelihood unless it's a loaded dice of all the six sides. But it's not obvious that that, and, and in a climate model, um, when you run a climate model, you, you in some sense have a population because that climate model will have a certain climate. If you run it long enough, you'll get a, a distribution of uh, everything that you might ever want to know. So you can apply the frequentist concepts to the output of a climate model for the characterization of that climate model. And the kinds of questions that you're interested in is how do I know that I've really uh, that I've captured the, the 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 response to to a doubling of CO two, or that what I see in the difference between the run with and without a CO two doubling is just because of chance, because you don't only have a finite uh, run of of the model. That's the kind of classic approach. But when we talk about the real world, there's only one real world. Uh, we only have one planet Earth. You can't talk about uh, a hypothetical population of planet Earths. I mean, I guess you I guess you could, but it's it's weird to me. Um, also storms are not the same. Every heat wave is, is different. A every storm is different. So even at the same place, they'll be different because again, you have different teleconnections going on at different times. So whenever you create this uh, population, you're making an approximation and you have to ask yourself whether the, uh, I mean, approximations are fine. We use approximations all, all the time in, in science, but the question is whether you're losing more than you're gaining. You gain something, but but you also lose something, and you have to look at that trade-off. And when we talk about the uncertainties in the dynamical aspects of climate change, the things like how the jet streams might change or El Nino might change, um, then we're talking about uncertainties that really are what would be called deep. And um, deep just sort of is is a is you could say it's a jargon phrase, but it's becoming a very popular phrase, the, a deep uncertainty. It essentially means not um, quantifiable through um, frequentist type probabilities would be a kind of a wor working definition of that. And we have lots of deep uncertainties. I mean, life is full of deep, deep uncertainties, actually. Um, and it's not uh, unreasonable to pose a question about a single event. You know, uh, just an example I would give is, you know, when, when NASA sent Apollo uh, 11 to the moon, they must have done a, a calculation of the likelihood of the astronauts coming back alive. You can't verify that. There's no long run mm. frequency. You can't talk about if I had 100 events. It's just, it's just a judgment, you know, um, and we make those judgments all, all the time. And that's what we're talking about climate change, because climate, climate change is a there will be one climate change in some sense. Of course, it'll manifest itself in a variety of ways, but we're talking about a singular event, about a single planet. So we have to generalize our under understanding of uncertainty. Um, and that's what storylines try to do, is they try to represent the, the uh, uncertainty, not in a probabilistic way, uh, but in a more of a, let's call it informative way, um, lo looking at all, all the different things that might might happen if you follow a certain pathway or a different pathway. So, you know, t typically you might have three or four storylines that would cover the range of what you think might happen. It's actually a very well-established approach in, um, you know, uh, uh, um, a business planning, actually military planning. It's called the, 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 the scenario approach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it's more radical in climate science because I think climate scientists feel they should just trust the the equations. I mean, the the idea that there's that you might represent uncertainty in a, in through these uh, scenarios is is not a problem. I think um, uh, psychologically, when we're thinking of how humans might respond to climate change or so on. If you're asking how the climate system might respond, we're trained to run run these climate models, and we think the models will will tell us the the, the answer. So it's been quite, I think it's a bit counterintuitive for uh, for many uh, for for many climate scientists. So, but they they've been war warming to it. As I said, it, it's interesting because in weather science, these kind of storyline approaches are actually used all the time without thinking about it that way, but just 
talking about single events, and they're basically causal explanations. You know, it's a cause and effect chain, and you might have a, a few possibilities. It doesn't have to be a single one. You know, you might say it might might have been this, it might have been that. You have various various hypotheses, and you can test them all against your your data and your knowledge and see what kind of evidence, what, what's the strength of evidence for 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 the different hypotheses. That, that's what the storyline approach is all about. Awesome, awesome. I hope, hope we managed to keep uh, enough of the list, listeners aboard there. Thank you very okay. much for, for for running through that. I just it got me thinking about one last thing. I'd I'd love to hear from your side because there's been quite a lot of discussion um, again along with the IPCC report around tipping points. You know these yeah. these points in the climate system where it's happening slowly and then suddenly it's happening suddenly. Like for example, uh, anybody who's seen the day after tomorrow, I think that, oh. that's a, that's an example of a sudden change. Um, I can't remember the exact reason why, but I remember reading about one that I thought was quite interesting, where if enough Arctic ice melts off Greenland, yeah. uh, the influx of fresh water into the yeah. North Atlantic could yeah. break down or at least disturb or change yeah. the way that the warm Gulf Stream flows up to past yeah. the UK and past Norway. And that's why where I'm sitting right now, and even further up in Norway, it can be four degrees in winter when at the same latitude in Canada, it's like minus 45 or yeah. something. It's the, it's um, the AMOC, the, Atl the Ad Ad Atlantic um, Meridional Overturning Circuit. Is the technical term, yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't work on tipping points particularly. I'm more working on these shorter timescale atmospheric phenomena. Um, I know there's, uh, the term is um, widely used and maybe too, too. Too widely used in some sense. I mean, the, it, if if terms get used, there's it, always arguments over terminology, and if they're used too broadly, maybe they aren't, they aren't helpful. But I think the idea that um, a small change can lead to a large impact is a very important concept, and that's what tipping points, you know, are concerned about. I've actually personally been more um, concerned about the fact that there could be social tipping points, you know, and that, for example, Mediterranean drought could lead to social tipping points, you know, before any climate tipping points. So that's sort of, I'm thinking more uh, uh, myself on the, uh, on the adaptation side and so on. But it's absolutely true that there are tipping points within the climate system. And it's as evident from the paleoclimate record that shows these really pronounced oscillations like Tanskot Oscar that are not forced, you know, so some of the oscillations are forced by, say, uh, orbital changes, although even there you have nonlinearity in the sense that what seems to be a relatively small forcing can lead to a large change, but then there's also these internal oscillations. And it's interesting that, um, you know, he, he, human um, uh, civilization has basically developed in the, the last 40,000 years, which has been this period of, uh, uh, um, sorry, 10,000 10, 10, years, I should say, which is the, the, the kind of very, very, very stable climate. And actually, stable climate is, is exception rather th th than the rule if we look at the paleoclimate record. So, you know, can we be confident that we will stay a, 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 in a stable climate? I don't think so. And um, so there's, there, there's a lot of interest in these. Um, uh, yeah, the AMOC is certainly one particularly important for, the, for, the, for, uh, for this part of the world. I think it's fair to say that the models don't simulate the, the these things very well at all. So we do need, and you know, that's going to be a different class of models yet again. Um, uh, you know, people aren't even really talking about that. I think with any seriousness in terms of the the mainstream climate modeling community. Why does that have to be a new class of models again? Oh, because you'd, well, you'd have to have very very high, high resolution of the ocean because the ocean's crucial to a lot of this. And I, I think maybe there's some areas going on that I'm not really a, aware of, but a lot of the emphasis is on um, pushing either um, the Earth, Earth, Earth system modeling in terms of components like, like the carbon cycle, um, where a lot of the emphasis is on, well, there's some emphasis on, on ocean processes, but it's to do with the surface, of course, a lot of it, and the, and the land surface especially. The atmospheric, People tend to well. I guess every group wants to increase resolution in its own domain. Uh, mm. So there's been a lot of emphasis on increasing the atmospheric resolution because uh, to better capture, let's say, a, a intense rainstorms. Um, to increase ocean resolution for these kinds of things would be extremely expensive because you need to have a lot of vertical resolution. You know, you know, limiting uh, computational. Uh, well, I um, think. 
Yeah, I, I shouldn't. I, as I said, I shouldn't speculate too much because because it's not really my, my area. But I think the computational demands would be very would be very very high. Now, people are trying to do this, of course, and then what they're doing is you know targeting models and in, in certain domains and trying to understand what the basic basic processes are. But I I don't think there's um you know there won't be uh, this won't be integrated into the mainstream models very in any time soon so i think there's going to be have to be learning from these tipping points as a way to understand what the possibilities are I mean, after one has happened then it becomes an observation that can be used for yeah that's right you you yeah. you can treat it a, as a conditional thing and then you can either bring that information into the other models somehow um so it is important that we try to figure these things out. Of course, people are very. There's been a lot of work also on ice sheet collapse too, which is another, you know, the West Antarctic ice sheet collapse. There are a few, a few areas which are which are deserving uh, uh, of attention. So I think um, scientists are quite keen to work on that because it's also intellectually cu uh, cu curious and so on. So it's 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 highly publishable work. So there's actually a lot of research going on. It's pretty well funded. Um, um, I don't know that we'll have very very strong answers anytime soon, but at least it will show us the range, you know, some some possibilities. And then it, the question just becomes, how much do you want to worry about that? And that will be very much depending on your situation, won't it? So obviously um, Norway will worry about the AMOC, but um, you know uh, uh, other parts of the world might worry less. Um, Mm -hmm. Sea level rise is a particular interest of certain countries, less to others. So, how much you worry about it becomes a decision-making question. Um, yeah, as you said before, with teleconnections, I guess you can't just take one piece of the puzzle. You need to right. understand the whole puzzle anyway for it to be. Yeah, you can't think of it as a prediction. I think that's the main thing. People, you know, first question people have is, what's going to happen? So you have to say, well, we, well, we can't tell you what will happen. All we can tell you is what could happen, and then you and then you have to get into a much more nuanced uh, uh, discussion about what level of confidence do you have to have. You know, your uh, IPCC uses uh, unlikely to the word unlikely to uh, describe anything up to a thirty-three percent chance of happening. Uh, that's a very strange word, I think, to use because if I told you that your airplane had a 33% chance of crashing, I don't think you would call that unlikely. So um, I think it's very contextual. You know, if 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 something has a very high impact, then you're you're worried about much smaller probabilities than you would if the thing ha had a small impact. So. Um, you know, at that point, you you just can't have a, a single answer. You have to start engaging in a dialogue, and that's partly why the climate communication problem, I think, is is challenging because people want simple answers. But there are a few things that that, that that are simple. Unless we we get to net zero emissions, it's it's going to keep getting worse. That's basically a fact. Um, you know, uh, there's a few things like that, but. Once you start getting into details, um, especially any of these um, uh, um, really high uh, uncertainty areas, you have to understand um, you can't just give a simple answer. Or if you do, do give a simple answer, it's going to be pretty uh, uninformative. You know, it'll say this thing might or might not happen. But you have to find out what the person is really interested in and what, what, their, what their concerns are. How much of a risk that they're willing to take, and and this sort of thing. So it begins to be much more, let's say, complicated. But I think that's why we need this more um, uh, language to, to deal with the specificities. Uh, we have to work on that m mm. much more. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I think if you did a control F for the words likely, unlikely, in a <laughs> IPCC report, be about two thirds of the page. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's really interesting to hear. I mean, there's still obviously a lot of areas to explore and for the science to, to, to go further and for things to be uh, to reach a higher resolution and a higher probability and a greater understanding. Um, but it's been really great to have you on to talk about all of this. And um, and yeah, make, make sure to put anything below in the show notes. You, you gave some links to some potential further reading um, and I'll make sure to include them. I don't know, do you have, do you have any mic drop thoughts or <laughs> comments um, on anything to do with climate modeling or where we're headed or yeah are you are you feeling hopeful about the the changes to the weather systems and oh, changes to the climate? well i'm not feeling hopeful about climate change but it's 
we only have one one life and one planet Earth. We just have to, you know, it's it's whether we're hopeful or not isn't really the point, is it? It's whether we can do something. Um, but when your back's against the wall, you, you just have to, you know, we're not placing bets on this. We just have to go 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 ahead and do it. I I'm I guess I'm I'm hopeful that there will there will be a large a change of heart because I thought think a lot of the problem has to do. This is not my area, but I think a lot of the do, problem has to do with the short uh, short termism and the fact that we don't value our our collective natural resources and it's all tied to the economic system and all these kind of things. You can see that in in COVID response as well. So we have mm -hmm. to. It's not just, I think it's not just going to be a sort of a technical fix. I think we have to find ways of um, of working very differently. So that's not a sign of a question particularly, but I think science can help to fit into that space by, as I say, um, I mean, it's a question, I guess this is a bit of a, um, I've been very inspired by reading uh, E.F. Schumacher's uh, famous books, Small is Beautiful from 1973, where he was talking about economics, but I think the uh, same, a lot of the same principles apply to climate science. And he's got a quote, and there was something along the lines of, you shouldn't um, uh, fit the real world to match your theory. You should fit your theory to match the real world. And so that's a real challenge, I think, that we ha have to try to deal with. Totally, totally. And hopefully the cl climate science can be the hot rod to to action, you know, pr prodding, prodding yeah. the economic bulls and prodding politicians. And That's right. It is. It, it, it has become a meme, I guess. It has become a real term. And, um, you know, I don't mind. Some people don't 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 like if other things get bundled into climate change, but it doesn't bother me because ultimately it's all part of the same problem. We're not taking care, care of our planet. Um, and uh, if climate is a way to organize energy and focus, then that that's fine. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I think uh, I, I can, we can try to hope that people see this as a, as a real challenge uh, collectively that we have to have to address. Totally. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Ted. I really, really appreciate it. And, okay. and yeah, hopefully we can um, have this live as soon as possible. And I'll let you know when it's all ready to rock and roll. All right. Thanks um, so much. Awesome. Well, speak to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of SDG Talks as much as we did. Check out the show notes for all the resources and please reach out if you think you're a good fit for an interview or have another idea for collaboration. Catch you next time and make sure to keep on SDG talking.